It is so great to be here with y'all this morning and to see your bright, shining, smiling faces. <laughs> Thank you. Today's scripture reading is one of Jesus' parables, and it's one of his most profound and popular parables known by both Christians and non-Christians alike. Now, digging right into the context of it, we see that it's from the Gospel of Luke, which has a very distinct focus on ministry to the, the marginalized, to the excluded, and the disadvantaged. In Luke chapter 3, we see a genealogy that traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to Adam, connecting him to all of humanity. Then we also read about Jesus challenging negative attitudes that would limit God's grace and care and blessings for particular people groups. And then we see Jesus insisting that the gospel proclaimed in his name be one of hope for all people. Now, we're in a new sermon series called The Seven Parables of Life. And in it, we're taking the seven deadly sins and flipping them on their head. So last week, Brad preached to you about the virtue of patience, which is the opposite of wrath. This week, we're going to talk about the virtue of charity and how it is the opposite of the deadly sin, greed. Now, this message is about charity, but that doesn't necessarily just mean money. <laughs> charity is about compassion and care. And so we, we, will see that, um, we, we will see that through caring, through loving, we're able to reach those who are the least, the last, the lost, and the lonely. Now, looking at our passage today, if we skip back just a few verses, look back to verse 25, we'll see what prompts Jesus to tell this parable in the first place. As he's speaking to his disciples, a lawyer stands up and interrupts him and says, I have a question for you. And our text specifically says that he's seeking to put him to the test. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have their similarities but they also have their unique differences in each gospel, and here are a couple of them. This parable of the Good Samaritan is only found in Luke and not in the others, but likewise, so is the question that the lawyer asks. So in Matthew chapter 22 and in Mark chapter 12, the lawyer asks the question, what is the greatest commandment? But in the gospel of Luke, he asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What do I need to do to go to heaven? Now, that doesn't sound like a trick question. And so appropriately, Jesus says, well, what does Scripture say? And so the lawyer responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And then he adds on Leviticus 19, 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, bingo, you've got it. You know the answer. But the lawyer is not satisfied. See, he sought to trick Jesus, and now he looks the fool in front of everyone for asking a question he knew the answer to. So he probes further, and he asks another question. Well, then, who is my neighbor? Now, this is actually a fair question, because Jewish scholars and rabbis and people debated this all the time back in this period, and even still today. Some people may give you differing answers when you ask, who is my neighbor? And really what he's asking here, remember, this is a subset of what do I need to do to enter heaven. He's asking, who do I need to focus on showing love to and who can I not worry about so much? And you'll notice that Jesus, in responding to this, doesn't just give a specific answer as to who his neighbor is by naming certain people, nor does he just say everybody. He tells the story. 
And what this story does is it breaks down that bifurcation that the lawyer was making. And it asserts that we love in response to God's love for us, not, uh, not as the cause for his acceptance of us. So whereas the lawyer was looking for a set listing of practices and rules he could follow to merit his way into heaven, the story shows that to live in love is to live the kingdom of God. Now, you'll notice that this parable answers two primary questions. Number one, it answers, who is my neighbor? And number two, it answers, what does it mean to love my neighbor? So with that, we'll we'll turn to the parable. And Samantha said it really well, but I'll just go ahead and repeat everything she said verbatim. You see a man walking down the road. And what's interesting about this man is that he is the only person in this entire story who is not named by his nationality or by his religion. It's just a man. Joe somebody is going on his way when suddenly he falls upon robbers who beat him, steal his clothing, leaving him naked, and leave him half dead on the side of the road in the shrubberies. Now, that's bad news. But like Samantha pointed out, oh, we see a priest walking by, and priests are awesome. There are the noble men, the holy ones, the people who are the mediators between the Israelites and God. Of course the priest is going to stop by and help a man in need. But he passes by on the other side of the road. Surprise. If I did that, I'd lose my job. So you don't have to worry. Now, before we go and just start assuming, oh, that priest is a jerk, there's probably a logical reason why he passed by on the other side of the road. Now, we know from the Levitical laws that Israelites could not touch corpses. You mess with dead things and you become unclean. You become polluted, defiled, ritually impure. We know that from Leviticus 21 and from Numbers chapter 19. It's very clear. And what did the priest do? What was so important about his responsibilities? Well, he did the sacrifice rituals. He kept up with the sacred items. He maintained the temple. Really important dude. And so when he sees this guy laying there, the text says he's half dead. Now, probably from a distance, he looked dead. And so the priest thinks to himself, well, there's a dead man. I could go check on him to see if he's maybe half dead and not all the way dead. But according to Jewish tradition, if even the shadow of a person were to touch a corpse, that person would become unclean. And so he does this kind of cost-benefit analysis in his head and says, well, If I go over and the dude's really dead and my shadow touches him, I'll be unclean and I'm really important. I'm a priest. I do important things. My job responsibilities are very essential to the life of the community. Better not risk it. So he passes by on the other side. Here's the priest who instead of choosing to help someone who bore the image of God, instead of even checking to see if there was assistance he could offer, chose to play it safe, chose to choose his job responsibilities, granted they were important, but chose his job over helping a fellow human being. So next, a Levite walks by. And Levites are awesome. They are from the holiest tribe in all of Israel. If you'll remember back to Joshua, they're the only tribe that doesn't receive a land allotment because their portion is the Lord and the tabernacle. So here we have it, literally the best of Israelite society walking down the road, a priest and a Levite. My goodness, if there was anyone who was able to help, who would be willing to help, it's these guys. 
And like the priest, he passes by on the other side of the road. Now, not all Levites were priests. So we know that he wasn't serving in the temple. Why on earth didn't he go help? Well, again, Levites were held to a high standard of ritual purity and ceremonial cleanliness. And so had he gone and messed with a dead corpse, he would have been put outside the city for so many days until he was declared clean again. Well, he couldn't risk that. He had friends to hang out with, go to the movie theater, all sorts of things to do. He had lots of Twitter followers that he couldn't disappoint. He, the community needed his presence. So he couldn't be inconvenienced because his lifestyle was too important. So he passes by on the other side. Now, the people who are listening to Jesus tell this parable are likely Jewish. And so it's at this point in the story that they say, Aha, we know where this is going. The noblest of the noble have failed. This is going to be a rags-to-riches story where the next person to walk by is going to be a normal Israelite layman who's going to be a farmer, and he's going to come and save the day. Oh, I love Israelites. That's how it's going to end. Nope. Now, did I mention that Jesus can be countercultural? Did I mention that Jesus will tell it like it is? Next person to walk by is a Samaritan. And we've all heard stories about how the Samaritans and the Jews didn't get along, how they hated one another. Intense rivalries. I'm talking bigger than the Hatfields and McCoys, bigger than Texas High and Arkansas High, bigger than Pleasant Grove and Carthage, even bigger than Texas A&M and Texas University. Did I say that? The Samaritan walks by, and just like the priest and the Levite, he sees the man. But unlike the priest and the Levite, our text specifically says he has compassion. He runs to him, sees that the man is still alive, takes bandages to wrap up his wounds, pours wine to prevent infection, pours oil to soothe the pain. He takes him and he puts him on his own animal, which likely meant that the Samaritan had to walk, and then carries him for who knows how long, who knows how far, to the nearest inn where he can be taken care of. And he pays the innkeeper and says, take care of this man. And he says, whatever it costs, I'll pay it. He doesn't say, give me an itemized bill so I know what's waiting. He doesn't say, here's a threshold of what I'm willing to give. He says, do what it takes. Now, the difference between the priest and the Levite on the one side and the Samaritan on the other side is not a difference of their nationality. It's not a difference of their religion. It's the fact that the Samaritan is the only one who acted in God's compassion and covenant faithfulness, who responded to this need with salvific care. Here is a man who saw someone in need and opened his heart to respond. Here is a man who acted out of love. Here is a man who saved a life. Now, when asked the question, who is my neighbor? The story would seem, you would think it would, it would cause one to think, well, the man who was being helped, was he to be considered a neighbor worthy of that assistance? But Jesus doesn't ask that at the end. Instead, he flips it and says, which of these people acted like the neighbor? Which of these people acted out of love? And the answer was undeniable. Now, when asked, who is our neighbor today? We could say, it's the world. But it's a little hard to be a good neighbor to the whole world. We don't know everyone's needs. Granted, the world is our neighbor, 
don't misquote the pastor. But I think the best way to really identify and articulate who is our neighbor, it's anyone who we see in need, anyone who we have the power to help, anyone who we can respond to with that same kind of care because of the love that we have for God and the divine image that everyone bears this morning in the 815 service, we had four or five ladies who were on their way to UMCOR to help prepare flood buckets and all sorts of other things to be sent to all sorts of people all over the world who were in need of them. They've never met these people, but there's a need that they can address, that they are able to give their time to fulfill. I think that James chapter 2 Verses 14 through 16 really says this well. So if you got your Bibles and you're flipping with me, James 2, 14 through 16. In it he writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Now, bear in mind, Jesus is not instituting some new legalistic system and structure here where you have to keep a checklist. Hmm, seven good works this week, I'm lacking three. Let me go out and find what I can do. Or where you have to take care of so many different types of people every given day or week or whatever. That's not the idea. The idea is that we have been given the opportunity to participate in what God is doing and how he is actively involved in the life of this world. As Christians, we believe that the kingdom of God is both now and not yet. And the hearness of the kingdom is our hearing and doing the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. It's our joy to participate, to actively involve ourselves in God's work here because of the love that we have for him. And the love of our neighbor, the care we give, directly results from that. Now, I'll tell you that I actually was in a position of the man who fell prey to the robbers. In junior and senior year of high school, and when I was in college, I lived with my grandfather, who was basically my father figure growing up. He's the one, really, who raised me and who took care of me. And on Sunday, January 4th, 2015, I came home from church after Bible study, and I found that my grandfather had passed away from a heart attack. Now, he, uh, he'd split everything uh, between the, the four of us, uh, me and his three kids. Everything he had, he left to us, including the house, which was split between the four of us. I lived at home with him, and then one of them lived in New York, another lived in Colorado, and another lived in Louisiana. So they come in, and they get together. And this is January of 2015. I'm about to begin my last semester at Lamar. It's another six months before I leave to go to Kentucky for seminary. And they come in, and they get together, and they say, Greg, we've decided that we want to sell the house now. You've got one week to get everything out, and we're going to put it on the market. Get your stuff and find somewhere else to live. You can imagine that was a really hard time. I lost what was basically my father and my home all in the same day. Well, that day, the pianist at my church drove up to my house, and this was the church I've been going to for, for four years, right after I converted from being a Jehovah's Witness. She drove up, and she got out of her car, and she ran up and wrapped her arms around me and hugged me, and she whispered in my ear, she said, I'm so sorry for your loss. 
and she hugged me for a minute. And then when she let go, she took my hand in her hands and she looked me in the eyes. And then she let go of my hand and I noticed that she had left something there. And I looked down and I saw that it was a house key. And she said, I imagine you'll need somewhere to live now. We've prayed about it, and my husband and I want you to come stay with us. We already have your room ready. So for the next six months, I lived in their house with my own room, rent-free. Every night, they had a hot dinner prepared for me after I got home from school and work. And then, even to this day, they have continued to support me in whatever ways they can. They went to my college graduation. They went all the way up to Kentucky when I graduated from seminary. They continued to send me birthday presents, Christmas presents, invite me to be with their families for Thanksgiving. And even last week, whenever I went to Houston for a conference thing, I was going to stay in a hotel, and they called me and said, we want you to stay with us. We don't want you to stay in a hotel. Now, their house just flooded they got, four, uh, they, they, had, they got a foot of water and they had to tear out the bottom four feet of all their walls. And they got my room ready first because they didn't want me to stay in a hotel. They are the closest thing I have to a mom and dad today. And they're my godparents. I didn't do anything to deserve that kind of treatment from them. Sally only knew me for four years and even only casually. But they decided to open up their home to me. They opened up their lives to me. And they opened up their hearts to me. And I have been insanely blessed ever since because of it. Friends, beyond these doors, there is a world filled with need. A world that abounds with people who are in similar positions. And even here in Texarkana. I've seen it when I've gone to Mission Texarkana. I've seen it when I've gone to the Randy Sams Outreach Center. I've seen it every other Monday night at Community Cafe. Open your hearts. Let us join together as one community, as one body with Christ, and show love and participate in what God is doing. Let us open our eyes and let us give love in whatever way we can, whether it be through time, whether it be through money, whether it be through whatever small things we can offer. Love is about action. Love is about doing. Amen.